Hello and welcome to the last instalment of the special iPodcast series Labour's Plan for Power. This episode is Starmer's Brexit Dilemma. Can Keir Starmer really get a better deal from Brussels to help the UK economy? Will Brussels be in a mood to listen? What do European leaders think of a Labour government? And yes, the big one. Will the UK one day rejoin the EU under Labour? With many voters now looking over Rishi Sunak's shoulder, more and more people are asking a blunt question. What would Labour actually do? This special live podcast series is all about that question. We talk to the people who want to lead Britain, those who will sit in Starmer's first cabinet if he wins power. We also talk to independent experts about what Labour could do in office. I'm Paul War, Chief Political Commentator of The Eye, the only national newspaper that has never supported a political party. We tell it straight and hold them all to account. Our commitment to you is politics without the spin, news coverage without an axe to grind, and this podcast is no different. We hear from Shadow Foreign Secretary David Lammy. The European Union is our number one priority because I believe that our future prosperity and security is predicated on good relationships with our European partners. Ed Balls. Right now, I think not talking about our relationship is a problem and not talking about how that fits with Britain's place in the world is a problem. And Professor Sir John Curtis. What the party does need to understand, if indeed it is elected into office by a predominantly pro-EU electorate, it's then got to think about how it's going to best keep that electorate. On January 31st, 2020, just before the COVID pandemic hit, the UK formally left the European Union. Its 47-year membership of the biggest trading bloc in the world was at an end. Nearly a year later, Boris Johnson finally unveiled his trade and cooperation agreement with the European Union. So I'm very pleased to tell you uh, this afternoon uh, that we have completed the biggest trade deal yet, worth £660 billion a year. From January the 1st, we are outside the customs union and outside the single market. British laws will... But Johnson's oven-ready deal turned out to be undercooked. It was left to Rishi Sunak to fix problems caused to trade with Northern Ireland and to rejoin the EU-wide Horizon science funding programme. Meanwhile, Labour observed a long vow of silence on Brexit. After being hammered in the 2019 election, partly because its Leave supporters defected to the Conservatives. Slowly, though, Sir Keir Starmer has edged to a position where he wants a better trade deal with the EU, all the while insisting the UK won't be joining a European customs union or single market. Among the reforms he wants are a deal on food safety, veterinary and plant regulations, mutual recognition of professional qualifications and easier travel for educational or arts purposes. Overall, Labour claims its changes to the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, known to experts as the TCA, will help to ease the cost of living crisis by boosting trade and jobs. But Jill Rutter of the Institute for Government Think Tank cautions that progress won't be simple, and even if achieved, may not have a profound impact on most people's lives. 
mutual recognition of professional qualifications, where if you talk to anyone in the commission, they say that's really, really, really difficult to do, really difficult. Look at all the reservations that member states put in the trade and cooperation agreement about about that. So I think it's quite hard yards to get much agreed, maybe something on mobility, maybe something on what's called sanitary and phytosanitary. Good news if you're a farmer or a business wanting to export food to the EU, but not really big economic game changers. Peter Mandelson says that the fundamental problem is that no trade deal can replace the free market benefits that came with being a member of the single market. All we can do in relation to Brexit is to do everything we can to rebuild respect and trust between ourselves and our European partners to sort of knock off the, as far as we can, the rough edges to soften the impact of the appalling trade deal that Boris Johnson negotiated uh, with the European Union and try and find some ways at the margin where we can increase trade opportunities with the European Union. David Lammy, who is Foreign Secretary in a Starmer government, would be in the lead on any negotiations, tells I that he wants to improve trade with the EU to deliver the economic growth the UK will need to fund public services. Lammy is unafraid of saying that the EU would be a key focus for a Labour government. No more vow of silence. The European Union is our number one priority. It's our number one priority because it's our backyard, It's our number one priority because there is war in Europe and because I believe that our future prosperity and security is predicated on good relationships with our European partners. He says that a Labour government would swiftly improve the mood music between London and Brussels and hold regular meetings to turn dialogue into action. I think there would be a tonal shift under a change of government with our neighbours in Europe, one, I think we do need to get back to structured dialogue. That might sound a bit technical, but let me just explain. I think listeners will find it extraordinary that the UK government does not sit down with the European Union in a structured way every four months or every six months and discuss the issues that matter to both parties. We need to get back to that. We think that we could have a veterinary deal with the European Union. They raise with us their deep concerns that there are less young people travelling between our countries now, whether they're school trips or whether they're students. The issues around professional qualifications have been significant. And then, of course, there are issues that we would want to revisit sector by sector. But is Brussels in the mood to help out the UK? And even if it were, will it have the time or capacity to do so? Next year, we'll see European Parliament elections, plus a new European Commission... The EU is also busy trying to come up with its own answer to Joe Biden's clean energy subsidies, to deal with illegal migration and to sort out its budgets. And the EU today is very different from the EU that the UK voted to leave in 2016, according to Fabian Zulig of the European Policy Centre think tank in Brussels. The UK had already fallen down the priority list even before we had these agreements, mainly because we live in a very different world now a world which is very challenging. And that has meant that uh, Brexit and all the consequences of Brexit really have become a third-order issue for the European Union. David Lammy says that Keir Starmer is mending fences with European leaders, 
while maintaining a level head about what can and cannot be on the agenda for both sides. We have been clear that we will not be going back into the single market. We will not be going back into a customs union. But we do believe we can build on this deal. Now, I know you'll have lots of um, listeners that will be upset at that. But let me just say that when you speak to colleagues in Brussels and in European capitals, as I have done, and let me be clear, I've been, you know, I've been to Brussels a couple of times, I've been to Germany three times, I was in Paris with, with Kier. They're not looking to reopen the Brexit debate. It was a very, very bitter divorce that went on a very, very long time. And even if they were, they would want to see consensus in the United Kingdom. And there isn't consensus because the Conservative Party is still opposed to the European Union in, in many, many ways. But that does not mean that the tone, the relationship and building on the deal, we cannot move forward. And Lamy says warmer relations are more than just warm words. Ahead of a 2026 review of the workings of the trade and cooperation agreement between the UK and the EU, he wants real progress on substance. Look, I think that they also recognise that the Labour Party were to win the next election has not got the divisions on Europe that the Conservative Party have. I did a meeting with Keir Starmer and European ambassadors, and they described the tonal difference as being like honey on toast. He's built a very good relationship with Schultz in Germany, who he knew also in that role. The chemistry between him and Macron was very strong. I sense from European colleagues, they recognise that we want to approach that review in a fundamental way. It's a negotiation. We've got to be you know, clear-eyed about that. But they do hear from us. And of course, we're doing that work, the preparation that you'd expect in opposition. However, some Brussels sources say they're surprised that Labour really hasn't been engaging more, even privately and informally, to keep up with the very latest in EU thinking. Some in Labour appear to misunderstand that the EU will need something in return for even talking about going beyond a review of the current Brexit deal according to Fabian Zulig of the European Policy Centre. It worries me when I hear the debate in the UK, where some people seem to think that a review of the TCA will mean going back to the negotiation table, going back to the fundamentals of the agreement. This is a technical review only. It is about saying, is the agreement being implemented in the way it was intended to be implemented? And he says that although some countries such as Germany have hinted that they're open to closer trade links, others have different economic interests and fear UK competition will take jobs away. What I would advise anyone who thinks about that, including the Labour Party, is to look very specifically at these provisions and say what interests are involved on the EU side. Are there also defensive interests which get affected by that? And then start talking about what can the uh, UK then offer, which can address those kind of concerns. For the moment, it really is about small steps and it's a slow rapprochement which we can achieve, not radical change in the relationship. And one thing that won't radically change is the EU's tough approach to relations with so-called third countries. Anand Menon of the UK and a Changing Europe think tank warns it won't be easy. In this sense, the Brexiters are absolutely right. The European Union in many ways is a legalistic, bureaucratic creation. And one of the things that means is there is absolutely no room for sentiment at the negotiating table. Every country that has ever negotiated with the European Union will report to you that they are inflexible. 
Labour may find the hard way that Brussels' hard-nosed approach to negotiations simply won't change, Jill Rutter suggests. There are quite a few things that Keir Starmer said he might want to look at that were asked for by David Frost, where the Commission and Member States said no. Things on allowing UK regulators to certify that things meet EU standards, which mean less bureaucracy for businesses here. One factor may end up being the size of a Labour majority at the next election. If it's big enough to suggest two terms for Starmer and 10 years of stability, Brussels may be more open to talking. Anything less, however, and things get more uncertain. It's just not clear that if you think that Keir Starmer might be a one-term prime minister and that you know whatever deal you did would be undone by a conservative successor, that you would put huge amounts of time and effort to it. If you think that this is you know, getting the UK back into a position that you'd prefer them to be in in the long term and you know maybe it's going to be hanging around for quite some time, then it might be worth investing in some of the sort of baby steps to see whether that does produce you know, what you might want as a path back to a much closer relationship with the UK. Despite Brexit, or maybe even because of it, There's no shortage of countries lining up to join the European Union. And with Ukraine, along with Balkan countries, all keen to enter the club, the EU's own enlargement is another big issue set to preoccupy its leaders in the next few years. But some in the UK believe that French President Emmanuel Macron's new European political community, a group of non-EU and EU states, provides a glimpse of the future. When Ukraine's President Zelensky attended the group's most recent meeting, he was clear on the need for unity. We all are Europe. And it's not just about geography. It's about history, morality and security that we share. And what further caught the eye of some in Labour was a recent working paper, backed by France and Germany, on ideas for a four-speed Europe. The report suggested that the first outer tier of associate members of the EU would include European Economic Area countries, Switzerland, and, wait for it, even the UK. But even this idea involved membership of the EU single market, being given speaking but not voting rights, and payments to the EU budget, all of which have been ruled out by Labour to date. Peter Mandelson, a former trade commissioner in Brussels, says some new relationship may be possible, but it won't be straightforward, and won't ever replace the benefits of being a full EU member. There are three models of relationship with the European Union. One is full membership. We came out of that following the referendum. The second is uh, just a very loose third-party relationship, a loose trade deal uh, of the sort that we've negotiated since, and it's pretty weak. The third option is called the European Economic Area, where we go back into the single market and the customs union, but we accept all the rules, all the policies, without being able to take part in any of the decision-making. In effect, we become a regulatory satellite. Now, I don't think either of those three options are either available to us or are going to be embraced by uh, the British public or are suitable for a country and economy of our size uh, and status. So, of course, I would like to find a fourth option or a fourth model relationship uh, between ourselves and the European Union. But I have to be very honest. I'm a former member of the European Commission, a former trade commissioner. I know how that system works. I know all about its rules and its politics. The European Union is not going to reform itself and to create that sort of opportunity for countries like Britain uh, 
you know, overnight and not in the foreseeable future. They may move towards it, but it will be at a fairly gradual glacial speed. And I hope that it will be possible. And people in the European Union are starting to talk about, you know, having organizing a membership of the Union between a sort of inner core people who use the single currency and are absolutely signed up to the entire European project and an outer community of associate members. Now, that's a model which I think, you know, has appeal for Britain. But I'm I'm not going to pretend that that's something that's going to come easily or quickly in the European Union or for Britain. Fabian Zulig of the European Policy Centre says that Brussels certainly won't want to offer anything that looks like entry to the single market by the back door, and certainly not without freedom of movement. I think that's very much an interpretation from the UK, which unfortunately gets us back into the world of unicorns and cake, because essentially getting into the single market will never be without a full commitment to all of the freedoms within the single market. Now, that does not mean that uh, countries which are outside of that can't have closer relationships with the European Union. Clearly, there are a lot of areas of close cooperation. But when it comes to the economic relationship, unless there is a major change in British attitudes towards alignment, towards who sets the rules, and the acceptance of the whole set of those rules, then I'm afraid the TCA plus a little bit is probably uh, the best you can get. Still, David Lammy sounds enthusiastic about Macron's European political community and its outer tiers. There are countries in the Balkans that are part of that discussion, uh, as well as Ukraine and others. Clearly, the UK is the sixth biggest economy in the world, is not in the same position as Kosovo. It is exciting. It is important. The government, our current government, have been a bit ambivalent about that. I think a Labour government would be less ambivalent about that. It presents a new opportunity, and it's one that I would want to seek to explore. I would say that for that outer ring of countries that are not in the single market, that are not in the customs union, issues of security, migration, intelligence, cybersecurity, climate remain really important issues on which we have to cooperate. It's a negotiation. I don't want to pretend that there aren't elements to it that are, aren't challenging and there are barriers. One clue as to how politically risky any such cooperation might be came when Keir Starmer said we don't want to diverge from the EU on environmental standards, on food standards or on workers' rights. The Conservatives pounced to suggest he wanted to rejoin the EU in all but name. And Labour was forced to issue a clarification that it was not contemplating so-called dynamic alignment, the jargon for the UK automatically signing up to new Brussels regulations. Yet even under Rishi Sunak, the UK is showing signs of wanting to align itself with EU rules. There are hopes that London and Brussels will agree to postpone rules on electric vehicle parts, for example, because neither side would benefit from the scheduled changes. For all Labour's reluctance to discuss the issue of alignment, this controversial topic will remain fraught for any UK government, Anon Menon says. And he stresses that while there are some upsides in post-Brexit freedoms for cutting-edge UK financial and bioscience sectors, the key is all about selling into the huge EU marketplace. 
the catch with all these stories about potential opportunities from Brexit isn't that they don't exist. They obviously do. But it depends on us being able to regulate well. That is to say, we have to find an answer that the EU haven't found in our regulatory system to do things better and more efficiently than they do. Even Rishi Sunak, as we track in our divergence tracker over you know, month on month, seems to have decided that it is better to stick with the EU wherever possible. And the logic of that is clear. Yes, we might gain a comparative advantage by regulating differently in areas such as fintech or gene editing. Ultimately, though, whatever we develop via those new regulations, we have to be able to sell in the EU market anyway. So ultimately, our regulations are going to have to pass muster within the European Union because firms that invest here will be eyeing that huge market on our doorstep and saying, actually, we need to be able to sell our stuff there as well. The other side of the, of the divergence coin is the EU doing stuff and us deciding whether or not we're going to keep up with them. And that, it seems to me, is going to be the real divergence story going forward. Brussels' plans to slap carbon taxes on countries whose goods are produced with dirty energy, for example, are a case in point. But Labour may have to show some flexibility, Menon suggests. Things like the EU's carbon border adjustment mechanism have massive implications for our exporters and pose questions for us which aren't we don't want to change our laws to diverge, but whether we want to change our laws to keep up with what the European Union is doing. So that, I think, is going to be the real challenge facing governments going forward. And that brings in difficult discussions about whether we have automatic alignment overseen by EU institutions, which is something that the Conservatives to date have reneged from, but which Labour might end up considering simply in order to keep us trading smoothly. Would Keir Starmer, a lawyer by background, even sign up to allowing the European Court of Justice to oversee the UK again, in return for better trade that could power economic growth? Jill Rutter says the idea isn't that far-fetched. I think it wouldn't be nearly so problematic for Keir Starmer to commit to ECJ oversight or indeed in theory, to alignment with the EU, though practically you'd have to work out how to manage alignment now uh, in Parliament because there's quite a lot of legislation coming through the EU we would have to keep pace with if you wanted to do that. You're listening to Labour's Plan for Power with Paul War, Chief Political Commentator of The Eye. Our team of expert journalists get to the truth with their reporting bringing you incisive news, features and analysis and a range of different subjects, from politics to your family finances. To get the full story for 40% off, try out a subscription for less than £4 a month. That's 12 months of award-winning journalism and you'll get a free book voucher as well. To sign up and save, head over to inews.co.uk forward slash podcast to get this deal. Sir Keir Starmer has slowly been talking more about Europe, even sometimes inadvertently. What piece of music sums up the Labour Party for you? Oh, for the Labour Party? I mean, I one of the pieces I've got is Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the choral yes. Ode to Joy at the End. It has got a sense of destiny and is um, hugely optimistic. It's that sense of moving forward to a better place is incredibly powerful. Rishi Sunak swiftly pounced to point out that Ode to Joy was the official anthem of the European Union. More seriously, whenever Starmer talks directly about links to Brussels, the Conservatives are alive to any weaknesses. 
The Labour leader faced a strong backlash when he suggested that the idea of Britain taking a share of EU migrants would be part of any negotiations over his plan to return illegal immigrants to Europe. Some in Labour fear Starmer risks overselling the promise of the impact on growth from tweaks to Johnson's trade deal, and that getting bogged down in rows over Europe will distract from his missions at home. So should Starmer make the EU his priority at all? Anon Menon questions whether the rewards would outweigh the risks. With the two wars going on at the moment and the international challenges we face, it would be silly to be at loggerheads with our neighbours and closest allies. On the other hand, making a political priority of negotiating sort of tinkerings with the TCA might not be worth the candle in the sense that God knows an incoming government is going to face an overflowing entry of severe economic problems at home. And unless you're willing to bite the bullet and say, OK, let's talk about the single market, because there's a lot of growth wrapped up with that. I do wonder whether, even if Keir Starmer is coming in with the intention of doing something about it, whether quite quickly Labour will realise actually the payoff might not be worth it. But Sir John Curtis, Professor of Politics at Strathclyde University, warns that Labour needs to appreciate just how much of its support will come from pro-EU voters if it wins the next election. Although Labour has attracted some Leave voters, around three quarters of its support is from voters who are pro-EU, particularly from among former Lib Dem and Green voters. You are still looking at a party whose vote is predominantly one of wanting to be inside the European Union, I frankly do not expect, and I don't, I'm not sure you can necessarily argue that Labour should necessarily change its position. What I think it does mean and what the party does need to understand is that it, if indeed it is elected into office by a predominantly pro-EU electorate, it's then got to think about how it's going to best keep that electorate when it's going to face a very difficult fiscal situation, probably it's still a difficult economic situation, and when therefore hanging on to its support could prove to be quite difficult, the question of what to do about Brexit might then look a rather more pressing one than it does at the moment with a party with a seemingly comfortable 20-point lead. So John says that Labour appears to have attracted Leave voters not from any anti-EU stance, but because Partygate and the Liz Truss mini-budget mattered much, much more to the public. And I suppose while you can say, on the one hand, you can argue that Labour's does still get a quarter of its vote from Leave voters, you don't want to lose them. On the other hand, it's the, the evidence is that the reason why you've gained amongst Leave voters, insofar as you have, isn't actually anything to do with Brexit and everything to do with Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. Former Cabinet Minister Ed Balls suggests that Labour should be talking more openly about its vision for relations with the EU, because unless they own the narrative, the Conservatives will pin their own narrative on them. I think it's hard. I think it's got harder and it is absolutely vital. And I worry that um, that we aren't having those kind of conversations enough at the moment. It's like we're a bit battered down, you know. We're outside the European Union. What is the vision for Britain? What kind of country are we going to be? The idea that we were going to sort of kind of boost off to some new nirvana as, um, you know, kind of Singapore on Thames was never going to happen. We're not going back in the European Union. Nobody thinks that's that's not on anybody's agenda for the next election. No party's manifesto. That, that, that is not the dialogue we'll be having with the European Union in the next decade. So what is our view of Britain's future? Where are the jobs going to come from? 
How are we going to engage internationally with our partners? How do we think of what we're doing on climate change, fitting with what other countries are doing? How are we going to respond to the need to make the most of those new technologies? These are all kind of big things which I think we should be talking about more and shaping expectations because none, none of that happens quickly. And I think um, the story that you the, you tell, the narrative that you, you tell as political leaders is really important. And the beginning of a government is a chance to tell you know, a new story. And you have to be telling that story for, you know, a year before the election. The clock is already ticking down to that election, expected either in October 2024 or even earlier next spring. Pro-EU campaigners also think that Labour should lean into the changing mood. Recent polls have shown support for staying outside the EU has dropped to around 42%, while the number wanting to be in the EU has risen to around 58%. An independent study by Public First and Britain in a Changing Europe also found some evidence of so-called brigret, regrets by former Leave voters for voting Brexit. While most voters said they'd vote the same way as they did in 2016, Leave voters are more likely to have changed their mind, with 16% saying they would have voted differently. Rachel Wolfe is the co-author of the 2019 Tory manifesto and a founding partner at Public First. I think the basic incentive for politicians not to talk about Brexit and the basic desire for a high percentage of the population not to have a big debate on Brexit remains. To unpack that a bit, you will have seen lots of polls that show that the majority of people would now stay in the European Union. And that's definitely the case. We recently did some research with UK and a Changing Europe on the Leave voters who would now vote to stay in. And what was this kind of regret thing? The first thing to say is almost nobody thinks Brexit's gone well, right? And almost no one thinks that there has been a sort of great upside from this. However, a very significant proportion of Leave voters still think that it will work out in the end. And an equally significant proportion think that the reason it hasn't gone well is because politicians didn't try or politicians were too incompetent to do it. So what they don't feel is this was a fundamentally terrible idea that was always going to be a disaster. They don't feel that. And so unsurprisingly, there's still very little desire for another referendum. And actually, even among people, younger people who voted Remain or would vote Remain, there isn't an enormous desire for another referendum. I think the basic view still remains that this is kind of done, it was very painful, and that this is not therefore something that they want completely reopened. Wolf also stresses that Leave voters are still attached to the idea that the UK has regained its independence from Brussels, for good or ill. And she sees little appetite for reheating the whole debate. It's also important to remember that most, a very high proportion of Leave voters did not vote Leave because they thought it was going to make the economy better. They think it has made the economy worse, but that's not really why they voted for it in the first place. They voted for it for a sort of combination of general control over law and, and immigration. And it is actually fascinating to me that even though immigration has gone vastly up and, and they would recognise that, it doesn't make them regret their vote more. But, but it doesn't. If it was possible for Keir Starmer to say, I've got this amazing new deal with the EU, which doesn't require another referendum, it's just kind of a change of our current deal, and it's going to massively improve our economy and open up trade, but there are no other trade-offs to it. Sure, everyone would love that. But what they don't want is another monumental national argument over it. Not yet. Might change, but not yet. But Sir John Curtis says that regret is not as important as the demographics. 
Younger people who didn't vote in the 2016 referendum are more likely to be pro-EU, and older people who wanted out have since died. As a result, he says, Labour is constantly filling its pro-EU tank of support. To understand why we're now at 57, 58, people wanting to be inside the EU as opposed to 48, I mean, regret is only part of it. So it isn't just regret, it's also a demographic change. And indeed, you know, one of the reasons, you know, one of the reasons why Labour's vote is more pro-EU than perhaps they anticipated, one of the key reasons is because most younger people say they're going to vote Labour, and most younger people say they're in favour of being the European Union. So this is constantly refilling the pro-EU side of Labour's tank. It's also the case, by the way, that those people who voted Labour in 2019, who in 2019 were still in favour of being outside the EU, they've become more pro-EU, like the rest of the electorate. That's also refueled Labour's EU tank, as well as being true, that those people who have changed their minds about Brexit from leave to remain are also more likely to have switched to Labour. So Labour's pro-EU tank has been constantly refueled by all these uh, other sources of uh, support for the uh, pro-EU side uh, of the argument. But will even younger voters have other priorities than Europe? Anand Menon suggests they might, especially the longer the UK is out of the EU. Demographics isn't destiny. Ten years' time, the 18 to 25-year-olds will have no real memory of people near them in age having done Erasmus or travelled in the European Union. It might be that that generation simply don't think about the European Union. They might have got used to, you know slightly problematic queues at Calais, you know, it being a little bit harder to go to Spain than it used to be. God knows they're not going to own houses in Spain in any numbers because most of them aren't going to own houses here to start with. So (laughs) that won't be an issue for them. And it might just be that actually one of the implications of Brexit is that our kids become even more global than they already are. Ed Ball says that as long as Labour can avoid talk of another referendum, it can show it wants to move the debate on. Right now, I think... um not talking about our relationship is a problem and not talking about um, how that fits with Britain's place in the world is a problem. And at the moment, I think the caution is that if we talk about it, we'll kind of revive old debates. You know, that if Keir Starmer starts talking about it, well, maybe that's going to take us back to second referendums or, um, you know, returns to free movement. What is our relationship going to be with our main trading partner, for the next 20 years. And our main trading partner in the next 20 years is going to be Europe. It's not going to be Brazil or India or Australia. Our second biggest one is America. No prospect, meaningfully, of a American-UK free trade agreement. It's just too difficult on financial services and agriculture. And even then, America, less than half of our trading relationship with Europe, it's our biggest trading relationship. Ball says talking positively about the nature of the UK's relationship with Europe is possible, but he suspects Labour isn't prepared to do it yet. I fear that's not going to happen until um, after we're through the general election. And if the Conservative Party um, lose and go into sort of leadership convulsion, that may set their ability to have that kind of conversation back sensibly for many more years. But I think, you know, the next government has got to start having, uh, with the public and with our European partners and international partners, a proper structured with metrics conversation about what we're going to do to get to a better relationship. It can be done but you've got to move on from the baggage of the second referendum and all of that. 
Peter Mandelson says that Brussels' big concern will be just whether a future Tory government would tear up any closer formal links. They're not going to be running towards that prospect uh, quickly or soon, but they're certainly not going to entertain it unless they see both of the main parties agreeing that that's what uh, we want in Britain, that there's a genuine consensus to do so, because they're not going to negotiate uh, some sort of new relationship one day with one government, only to see a British general election and a new government going into reverse. David Lammy agrees, though he hints that the Tory party may be forced by the changing polling into changing its position. I felt that I was pretty prominent in the debates around leaving the European Union. I've seen the polling and and, and the changing mood, but I just go back to this point that at the moment the Conservative Party have still set their face against the European Union broadly. And now they're a pragmatic party that historically, over its, over their many hundreds of years, have changed their mind on things. They haven't changed their mind on this. If that polling is right, then they might do, but they have to at the moment. So does there have to be a cross-party consensus before the UK could even think of rejoining the EU? My sense is that Europe would demand one. Yeah. Britain would have to demonstrate that. So I, I, I don't see that over the next political cycle, which is the cycle that I'm effectively in politics. Right now, the Conservatives are certainly keen to weaponise any suggestion that Labour would want to rejoin the EU. This clip of Starmer at the Labour 2018 party conference, when he won cheers for talking about a vote to remain, is sure to be replayed time and again. It's right that Parliament has the first say. It's right that Parliament has the first say. But if we need to break the impasse... Our options must include campaigning for a public vote and nobody is ruling out Remain as an option. But how keen are the public on reopening the whole idea of a fresh referendum? When I raised the issue with Sir John Curtis, he was quick to put me straight. But there's no evidence in the polls, is there, in terms of wanting another referendum? No, 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 This is, this there? is, this is one is of those great myths of our time, right? If you actually look at the evidence, well... It's not that there's an overwhelming demand for a referendum, but basically the polling does suggest that a majority of those people who want to be inside the European Union are in favour of having a referendum within the next five years. One, one of the myths was, oh, Remain voters have given up and they, they accept it. Well, that was the myth about two years ago, and we've discovered that was a myth. And then the other one is, oh, okay, but you know, people just don't want to go through this anymore. Well, yeah, sure, some people don't want to go through it anymore. But again... So often on these things, people who want to see a change would like to have another referendum. Curtis also says that a new referendum campaign may focus on the positive economic benefits of joining the EU in a way that didn't happen in 2016. And he also says there's one key topic that may not be as electrifying as it was back then. I think what one can tell, however, from the polling evidence is, you know, what is it that still keeps Leave voters on side? And what is now seemingly irrelevant as an issue. Now, I'm probably going to surprise you even more now, Paul. The issue around Brexit that no longer seems to be important is immigration. People who voted leave in 2016, who think that immigration has gone up, and a lot of them now do, are no more or no less likely to have changed their minds about Brexit than those people who have not. It may now be 
that freedom of movement, which was undoubtedly a major Achilles heel in 2016, may no longer be as much of an Achilles heel because basically now you can point out, well, which do you prefer? Do you prefer immigration from France, Germany and Italy or do you prefer from India, Pakistan and Bangladesh? Because in practical terms, that seems to have been the choice that we've ended up making and therefore, you know, we, we basically, we can't stop the immigration, but we can make a difference to where it comes from. And that's really the difference. That, that's really uh, the change that's happened uh, since 2019. So you've probably got rather more of a defence uh, than was the case seven years ago. Former Tory cabinet minister Ken Clark, hardly an anti-EU politician, is horrified by the idea of a new referendum. I'm afraid I accept we can't just go back in. You can't have God save us from another referendum. You know, it's, it's, you're going to have to take your time over it. We're not going to go politically yeah. back into the European Union, not in the foreseeable future, not in my lifetime. Anand Menon is similarly sceptical about rejoining in his own lifetime. I would be surprised. So, I mean, full disclosure, I'm 58, so I suppose my life expectancy is 88. So what's that, 30 years? I would be amazed if we rejoined within the next 30 years. Because if you think about the time scale, we need at least two parliaments and probably more for one of the big parties. And let's face it, it's not going to be the Tories. For the Labour Party to start talking about this seriously, there's probably five to ten years of negotiations involved, even if we did it and it's not sure that we would. But when European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen was recently asked if she thought the UK would rejoin the EU, she hinted that the next generation would find a way. I keep telling my children, you have to fix it. We goofed it up, you have to fix it. Mm. So uh, I think here too, the direction of travel, my personal opinion, is clear. And Rachel Wolfe, the co-author of the Tory 2019 manifesto, says that while it may currently look unlikely that the UK would rejoin the EU... Voter demographics, voter volatility and global instability may all make it possible. Even since the 2019 election, we've had COVID and we've had two major wars. We're on the verge of potentially wars or at least proxy wars between China and the US. The whole kind of world order is rearranging itself. And I think in that context, you could imagine the EU itself completely changing, what it means to be in the EU completely changing. And I, I think it's perfectly possible that we would have to form a different kind of relationship or a new relationship or go back in in some form, because I think we're in an era of radical uncertainty and change. So it's definitely true that voters are changing and that age is the fundamental dividing line of politics now on almost every issue. And so if you assume that all those young people are going to have exactly the same opinions as they get older, and all the next generations are going to have the same opinions, which is possible, then of course it's going to change. So does David Lammy think the UK will rejoin the EU in his lifetime? I haven't got a crystal ball. I've been in politics long enough to know that, for example, I didn't foresee the influence of Nigel Farage in our politics. Who could possibly have foreseen the pandemic? I think that we are, we've got to be in a realist place at this point in time, pretty sober here in the UK. Lammy gets on well with his new opposite number, David Cameron, having produced an independent review for him during the Tory Lib Dem coalition. But was Brexit Cameron's biggest foreign policy mistake, only holding a referendum because he complacently assumed he'd win? Well, I think, it, it, I think you know, there are a lot of people who feel very strongly that scuttling off after that decision was not his finest hour. 
I've always been of the view that Etonians make wonderful actors. I'm watching The Crown at the moment, and Dominic West, who plays Charles, plays him very well. But but I'm not sure they make great politicians. They slightly believe too much in their own alchemy, and I think uh, David Cameron's guilty of that. But was David Cameron right that a referendum was inevitable? I don't want to go back. Uh, I want to look forward. As I say, it was a bitter time. The country found itself really torn apart. We need now to come back together and to heal. And I genuinely believe that Keir Starmer represents that, coming together, turning the chapter, turning the page, and moving on in a united posture. And one of the things that happened, sadly, after the decision to leave the European Union is Boris Johnson could have begun his period as Prime Minister by bringing the country back together. And he decided instead to behave in office solely for one side of that debate. And um, I'd like to think that, you know, now it's important for me, if I have the privilege of being Foreign Secretary, to try and pursue the job in Britain's national interests. And that is in the national interests of everybody in the country, however they voted seven, eight years ago. Thanks for listening to the IDE podcast series, Labour's Plan for Power. You can catch up with all four episodes on the economy, the NHS, the North-South Divide and on Brexit, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like them, please do subscribe and leave us a nice review. And stay tuned for our next special IDE podcast series in 2024. This podcast was produced and edited by Julia Webster.